Let me pray for us, and then we will move again. Father, thank you again for this unbelievable opportunity that we have uh, to be your people gathered together, uh, to hear your word, to be changed by your spirit, uh, to make much of you, uh, and to live lives that reflect your glory in a city that's desperate uh, for a real reflection of what truth and love and freedom is. Uh, So Lord, we ask your blessings and your kindness upon our time together. We ask that your spirit do what only he can do and take very um, human and feeble words like mine and use them effectively for your glory. Um, Let us walk away with a sense, uh, maybe for the first time, or or maybe a deeper sense of who you are uh, and why we should worship you. We ask this not to be made much of, but that we might make much of you. In the name of your precious Son, we ask these things. Amen. Um, Leading six of your seven poetry slam teams to the national championship and winning four of them before anybody else wins two doesn't really garner a lot of press and attention uh, in our country uh, compared to the kinds of things that make headlines. Uh, But that's exactly what a guy named Taylor Molly did not too long ago. Uh, His bio, I guess bios are supposed to say this, say that he's arguably the most successful poetry slam strategist in the history of the competitions. But his success at these competitions and leading teams to those championships uh, didn't catch my attention and didn't catch anybody else's attention. But what did catch my attention years ago was when I was watching television and I turned on the Deaf Poetry Jam to watch some of these guys. Uh, I'm fascinated, not only, like we said last week, by music, but by anything of the spoken and written word and the command of language. And I began to watch these guys. Taylor Molly came out and he performed one of his poems that has stuck in my brain, excuse me, has pierced my heart. Uh, and has never left my attention for very long. And, and I, wanna, I want you to listen to it. I, I, I won't do it justice, but uh, I want you to hear uh, what he had to say. It's called Totally Like Whatever You Know. So in case you hadn't noticed, it has somehow become uncool to sound like you know what you're talking about or believe strongly in what you're saying. Invisible question marks and parenthetical, you knows, have been attaching themselves to the end of our sentences, even when the sentences aren't um, like questions. Declarative sentences, so called that because they used to like declare things to be true, are as opposed to other things which were like not true, have been infected by a totally hip and tragically cool interrogative tone? You know? Like, don't think I'm uncool just because I've noticed this. This is just like the word on the street, you know? It's like what I've heard. I have nothing personally invested in my own opinions, okay? In speaking this way, I'm just inviting you to join me on the bandwagon of my own uncertainty. But what has happened to our conviction? Where are the limbs out on which we once walked? Have they been like um, chopped down like the rest of the rainforest? Or do we have like 
um, nothing to actually say? Has society become so totally um, like, I mean, absolutely, you know, have we just gotten to the point where we're all just like, whatever? And so, actually, in our disarticulation-ness, it is just a clever sort of um, thing to disguise the fact that we have become the most aggressively inarticulate generation to come along since um, a long, long time ago. So I entreat you, I implore you, I exhort you, and I challenge you to speak with conviction, to say what you believe in a manner that bespeaks the determination with which you believe it. Because contrary to the wisdom of the bumper sticker, it's not enough these days to simply question authority. You have to speak with it too. Molly said, what has happened to our conviction? Where are the limbs out on which we once walked? What has happened to the deep-seated and deep-rooted convictions that once gave direction, concrete direction to the ways in which we lived our lives? Maybe in becoming the most aggressively inarticulate generation, we've not only lost the capacity to speak with any real conviction, but maybe that's just a reflection or a fruit of a much deeper problem. Maybe we've lost any real sense of conviction whatsoever. That maybe it's not just our ability to communicate conviction that has gotten so bad. But maybe in our hearts, maybe in our souls, maybe in our lives, we have lost the sense of living with any real conviction at all. Where are the deeply rooted beliefs, the convictions that give shape to the way that we live? Where are the limbs out on which we once dared to walk? Sometimes when you talk about convictions, you'll hear people, uh, especially institutions like a church, uh, or a business, but I won't pick on businesses because we're a church. I'll pick on the church. Um, I can do that. It's my team and my family. I can pick on the church. But sometimes when the church talks about convictions, uh, another way that we'll talk about it is we'll talk about values. We'll, we'll frame these things, that, uh, these, these ideas or these concepts that, that we think hold deep-seated direction or give root and texture and fabric and shape to the way that we live the lives that we live. And, and so we'll talk about values, and it's not foreign. It's, it's a pretty common idea. It's a pretty common conversation. I don't know if some of you were alive or, or maybe you were just not watching television at the time, probably a handful of political cycles ago, when family values and the argument of values came back to center stage with Dan Quayle and Murphy Brown when the vice president and television went head-to-head -head with each other. And from that point forward, the idea of values that give shape to the way that we live our lives took front and center spotlight attention in this country. And from that point forward, we've always had this ongoing debate of what it means to be a people 
what it means to be an individual family, and then as a church now, what does it mean to be a people who have been transformed by God, brought together by his spirit, and are called to live in a way that gives him honor and reflects his glory? What are the values that we have that give shape to who we are that are supposed to give direction to how we live? Values or convictions are these things that are intrinsic to us. They're intrinsic to our lives and they're woven through our souls and we could no more part with our values or part with our convictions uh, than we could anything. So think about it this way. I was trying to think of uh, of a way to make it more concrete for you. Imagine that our church traded places with the cast of Lost, that we decided to fly to Durham instead of drive, and on the way we ended up on some kind of magnetic deserted island that wasn't really deserted. But we, we crashed, and there we were. We would have left our, our city behind. We would have left our homes behind. We would have left our jobs behind. We would have left our cars and our stuff and all of our toys behind. But the one thing that we could never leave behind are the convictions the values that are intrinsic to who we are, that give shape to how we live. And the expectation would be that as a people, even in that environment, what would be reflected in the way that we handled ourselves, related to one another, related to God, and the circumstance we found ourselves in would be driven and shaped by the convictions that were rooted in our soul. For that to actually happen, though, you not only have to have conviction, you not only have to have convictions that are in your soul. Let's just assume that they're there. What actually has to happen at that point is that you actually have to live them. You actually have to embody the values that you profess to have in your life. See, what tends to happen, especially in a church, is that we'll, we'll talk about these values and, and, and we'll say we, we value these things. We value truth. We value I don't know, what's another idea? Beauty. We value all these things and they become great concepts that we can talk about, that we can argue about, that we can reflect on, that we can use as limbs not to walk out on but to beat other people with and judge the way that they live and relate to God. But the one thing that we never actually do is embody them ourselves and let them give shape to the way that we actually live. We stand at an arm's distance from these things and keep them as platitudes and ideas that we can judge ourselves by and judge others by but never actually have them woven into the depth and the fabric of who we are. So if we were to find ourselves in that situation as a church on this deserted island away from all the trappings that make us who we are, to have those convictions and these values reflected in our lives, we're going to actually have to believe them and embody them. Values and convictions easily remain disembodied. And so for it to actually be a conviction... For it actually to transcend an idea that we like, that we can agree with, um, that, we, that we would like to reflect on and talk about and actually become something that gives shape to the way we live, we actually have to embody these things. We actually have to weave them down into our soul and into our, our life. And so for the next several weeks, probably seven weeks, we are going to take time on Sunday morning to talk about the convictions or the values, the embodied values that we hold dear at Redemption Hill. The things that we hope in time we will be increasingly reflected by, that will be increasingly reflected in our lives, that we'll be increasingly known by with each other and, and the people around us. What things at this point in the life of our church do we hold as deeply seated values or convictions? And so instead of just 
naming off these things that, that we value and, and, that, we, and that, we, that we like or we want to see reflected in our lives, we decided to actually put a response to them. Because for a value to actually become a conviction or for a value to actually give shape to your life, it has to demand a response. If you really value something, it will change the way you actually live. It demands a response with your whole life, your whole heart, your mind, your hands, what you do and how you live and how you love. It changes you. And so instead of valuing truth, we decided to think what things are deep-seated convictions that we hope are woven into the soul of this church and what corresponding response do we hope to see? As these things are deeply, deeply, deeply seated in the life of our, of our hearts and our souls in this church, what would we anticipate the result to be? And so we're going to take the next seven weeks to talk about those values, and, and we're calling this series Cultivate. Now, why not call the series Conviction? Um, or why not call the series Values? Uh, we call the series Cultivate, one, because it's one of my favorite words in the entire English language. Um, uh, the, the more I think about the word cultivate, the more in love I fall with that word. I, I, I absolutely love all that's loaded in the word cultivate. But we're calling the series Cultivate because the idea of cultivation, the idea of the process of starting with the idea of wanting to see something bear fruit and actually walking through the process, if you're a gardener, of actually determining what you want to grow, finding the right place to grow it, preparing the land that you're going to grow it in, getting out all of the rocks, getting out all of the sticks, rooting the weeds out at their deepest level, preparing the ground, getting the nutrients in there, planting the seed, watering the seed, caring for the seed, all along trusting that in the end God will do what only he can do and make something grow out of that thing. That whole process is cultivation. That's what has to happen for values to actually become convictions. To see responses be born out of the ideas that we want to see woven in our hearts, we actually have to cultivate them. We've taken a lot of time in the last few weeks in, the, in our study of Colossians to talk about how hard, how thorny, how full of weeds and rocks and sticks our hearts really are. And if we want to see the values that, and the convictions that we believe God is planting in our hearts and wants to see cultivated in the life of this church, we're going to have to do work. We're going to have to be purposeful and, and intentional about making sure that our hearts are always fertile ground that we are intentional about pulling out the weeds, that we're intentional about nourishing, we're intentional about caring for. And so we talk about cultivating because we are anticipating a particular fruit, a particular response to come from these convictions, and we recognize that to see it happen, it's going to take, it's going to take work. And so to date, we've, we've identified seven convictions, seven values that we want to see increasingly reflected in the hearts and the lives of the people of this church, that we want to be known by in the city and, and for generations to come, when people talk about what's that church like, what, what are those people like, these are the things we want to be reflected in the relationships that we have with other people. We, we want to be a people who worship Jesus above all else because the reality of it is our hearts have a hardwired tendency to bow their knees before many things other than Jesus. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. We want to be a people who treasure the riches of the gospel because there are a lot of things in creation, including ourselves, that our hearts are bent to treasure, are bent to stake their claim on, are bent to fight for. We want to be a people who surrender to the word of God. We don't just value the scriptures or value the Bible. We want to be a people who surrender to it and don't propose that the ideas in our minds and the ideas that we carry to the scripture have authority over the scripture. We want to surrender ourselves to it. We want to live life with the urgency of eternity. 
because we'll be easily distracted by the temporal and the hollow. We want to be a people who delight in the wisdom of God's process. We don't just value what God does in changing us from the sinful, rebellious, arrogant, idolatrous people that we are to a people that reflect his glory. We want to actually delight in that process and see the wisdom of it. We want to be a people who pursue the depths of community. We don't just value relationships. We don't just value friendships. We don't just value community, which is such a a big word in the church today. We want to be a people who actually pursue it and pursue it with passion and pursue depth in it. We don't want to wake up one day and find ourselves a mile wide and an inch deep with people. Yeah, a Facebook church with full of acquaintances, but no real relationships. And we want to be a, a people who display God's strength and our weakness, who value the strength and the power of God in his spirit and through prayer to display his character and his worth as we become the people who trust in him and live in dependency upon him and not in our own selves and our own strength. So we want to worship Jesus above all else. We want to treasure the riches of the gospel, surrender to the word of God, live with the urgency of eternity, delight in the wisdom of God's process, pursue the depths of community, and display God's strength in our weakness. Those are the convictions to this day. We may find more. I don't know. The more we read, the more we pray, the more we grow, the more we change, the more we're humbled, we may find more convictions that we, that we want to see woven. But this is where we are to date. These are the things that we want to see work down deep into the soil of our hearts and into the fabric of this church. These are the things that we actually want to see embodied in the way that we live, the way that we relate to God, the way that we love one another, and the way that we love the city. So that's where we'll start. You ready? In the time we have left, we're going to talk about worshiping Jesus above everything else. This ought to be fun. Value number one, conviction number one is Jesus. Jesus, man, it should go without saying, right? I mean, some of you are thinking, oh, okay, I'm in church. They value Jesus. That's probably a good thing. Um, it should be. It, it should actually go without saying. But the problem is I think we've approached the idea of the things that we value in the church so long with the idea that we should assume that Jesus is the highest value, is the thing that is our deepest-seated conviction, the person and the work of Jesus and what God has done through Jesus that We've assumed him so long that we've actually set him off to the side, to the margins, to pursue the things that we think we need to pursue and things we think we need to be about as a people, individually and corporately. So as I was reading one of my my favorite writers this past week, Paul Tripp, has this great book called A Quest for More. He actually was saying in this book that today, the American church's Christianity has actually lost or no longer has any room for Jesus in it at all. That there's actually no more room for Jesus in our Christianity because we have no more room to believe in what he has done for us because we're so bent on believing what we have to do for ourselves that we've created a religion and created a faith that no longer has any room for Jesus in it at all. So to actually say Jesus is our, our highest and greatest good, our deepest and most passionately held conviction or value that demands a response from us should no longer be something that's just assumed in the life of the church because that assumption has led to an actual forgetfulness of who Jesus is and what he has done. So conviction one, value one, Jesus, and he demands a response, and the response should be worship. 
as the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done and who God is for us in Jesus is woven deeper into our lives day in and day out as our hearts are continually challenged to turn back to and reflect upon who God is for us in Jesus and the good news of the gospel of what God has done for us in Jesus is that is woven deeper into who we are and our lives are lived out of what he has done and who Jesus is. The expectation would be worship. And we'll get there in a minute. Because the problem that I think has come because of the assumption of Jesus always being the highest value is a reality or a forgetfulness of who this Jesus actually is. I mean, who is Jesus? Everything about our hope, everything about our joy, everything about our freedom, everything about our faith stands and falls on the person and work of Jesus. If we don't get him right, and what he has done appropriate. Like Paul said, we're the most of all people to be pitied. Everything about our hope stands and falls on the person of Jesus. So who is Jesus and why is he so important? Jesus has been hmm, inspiring that question since he arrived on the scene. The question of who is Jesus has been on the lips of people since he began his ministry centuries ago. In fact, it was on the lips of prophets and kings long before he was ever born. But his life and his work inspired that question like nobody else in all of history, even to this day. So the question of who is Jesus has been something that's been spoken since we, before we ever showed up on the scene. And, and we're going to just blast through a lot of Bible. A lot of stuff is going to come up on the screen, so don't try to keep up. I'll just tell you where it is. Make a mental note and we'll go. People have been asking who Jesus is as they stood in awe as he healed the sick. Go to Luke 5, as he controlled nature, Mark 4, as he forgave sin, as his disciples, his own people, the men who he had called to himself, who had followed him for years, stood in awe and wondered about who is this man who does such things. And even in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, you read that after he was raised from the dead, before he ascended to the Father again, when Jesus rose up in his ascension, some of his disciples stood there and the Bible says they even doubted who he was then. They'd followed him, been with him, seen him, watched him, talked to him after he rose from the dead and is ascending to God just as he had promised. And they stood there and said, "Ah, I don't know. Who? Who is this man that, that does such things? Even Jesus himself raised the question to his followers. Who do people say that I am? Who do they say that I am? As he and his disciples moved into Caesarea Philippi, traveling through the northern end of Galilee, Jesus gathered them together and, and said, who, who do all the people out there, when you go out to the markets, when you're, when you're doing what you're doing, who, who do they say that I am? You know, some answers came back that you are the prophet Elijah. You're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some said he was even Jeremiah coming back from the dead. Other people who took a completely different take on who Jesus was said that he was a demon a false prophet, a deceiver, and to some, to the Romans, he was a threat to the national peace of the nation. As this man who gathered people to himself and inspired the hope of the people and what their desire was to be free from the oppression they found themselves in as Rome, Jesus became the object of 
a great deal of insecurity for Rome. If he were to inspire these people and these people were to gather to themselves, they'd have a fight on their hands. Who, who, who is Jesus? Well, a couple of ways to understand a little bit about who he was and what inspired these questions and, and what has continued to inspire these questions for, for centuries is to look at what he did and, and what he said. So what made him so controversial? Well, the slide will come up. Jesus' authority. Jesus carried an authority and acted with an authority that confounded everybody that came across him. Everybody that met Jesus and watched Jesus, followed Jesus, or experienced Jesus in the life of his ministry was confounded by the authority that this man had, that this man carried. He had an authority over demons, over sickness and disease, over nature, and even over death. Look, if you've got your Bibles, go to Mark chapter 2. I can't resist this one. Go to Mark 2. I think we might just hang out in Mark this morning. Is that all right? Boy, how do you do a week talking about Jesus? That's why we do it every week. Part of what we do every week to worship Jesus above everything else is to talk about Jesus and how he changes us. The one way we worship him is by talking about him. Listen to this. Mark chapter 2. When Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. He was preaching his word to them and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic laid. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are are forgiven. Who in the world is this man? Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take your bed and walk? Look at that. How many of you can say that? What's easier? You're forgiven or get up and walk. Don't think these people weren't just absolutely beside themselves. So rise up, take your bed and walk, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Who is this man that carries an authority to speak the words of God and say, your sins are forgiven. And not only that, to look at this man and say, now get up and go home. People were absolutely amazed. Who has this kind of authority? Go, go to Mark chapter 4. Mark is good. I love Mark. Go to Mark 4. Look at all this. Mark four thirty-five. On that day, when evening had come, he said to his disciples, let us go across to the other side. They were going across the lake, and, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, talking about Jesus, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And when he awoke, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this 
that even the wind and the sea obey him. Who is this man that has such authority that he can walk in and speak to a paralytic and say, get up and go home? Who is this man that can look at a man before he even heals him and say, you know what, son, your sins are forgiven? Who is this man that can be standing in the middle of the storm, wake up and look at you and go, what in the world is wrong with you? Stop. And it just stops. You, do you read these stories? Can you put yourself in the place of these people? Everybody who experienced the person and the work of Jesus was left with this question, who in the world is this man that commands such authority over sin, over sickness, over nature, who can heal the unhealable? Look, you get your Bibles, you're already in Mark 4. Look at Mark 5. Who is this man that can even heal the unhealable? They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there he met a man of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, bruising himself with stones. People had just given up. And when Jesus saw him from afar, he ran. Listen to this. This man saw Jesus and he ran and he fell down before him. Crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Who is this man that has such authority to actually heal and deliver the unhealable? The one that they had been given up on. The one that had been absolutely cast aside. The one that nobody had any hope for anymore. Who is this man that not only has authority over nature, over sin, but he has the authority to heal even the unhealable? Who is this man that not only has that kind of authority, but if you keep reading Mark 5, I love this. He has the authority over death. While he was still speaking, Mark 5, 35, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? This man Jairus had come to Jesus asking that he would help him with his daughter who was sick. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said, Why are you making such a commotion and weeping? Now listen, stop when you read these things. I don't know if you've ever lost somebody you loved. I don't know if someone so close to you has ever passed away that it's, it's wrenched you emotionally in your grief. And in comes this man who walks into your mourning, to walks, in, walks into your time of loss and looks at you and says, why are you weeping? Stop. Stop with the commotion. I don't know if you understand the kind of trouble that Jesus would bring upon himself with these things, the kind of confusion, the kind of chaos, the kind of wondering that would go on in people's hearts when they would come across him. But why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child is not dead but sleeping. They had watched her die. She had been dead. 
their daughter, the one they loved. So why are you making a commotion? She's not dead. She's just sleeping. Who in the world do you think you are? I mean, where have you been for days? I've watched her die. Who are you walking into this house like that? And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him. Went in where the child, and they went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Who is this man that has such authority that he can speak to nature, to sin, to sickness, and has authority even over death itself enough to raise people from the dead? And here's the crazy thing. Here's the crazy thing about what Jesus did in all these things. He did them all by the speaking of his word. That's all he did. Jesus didn't use any incantations, any special prayers, any particular way that you got to pray. I don't know if you've ever been around that stuff in your experience with the church, but sometimes we can get so caught up in what we think we have to do that we create these little incantations and special prayers. If you got to say it this way, you got to put what you need before, what he's done before, what he is and what his name is or else it won't come true. And we end up treating Jesus like this crazy pinata that we bash at and we have to hit it just right when we pray for anything to actually come out and actually happen. But Jesus did nothing of the sort. He had no special prayer, no charm, no amulet, no incantation, no spell that he cast. He simply, by the authority of who he was as the son of God, spoke to these things and they simply obeyed. Unbelievable. I don't know if you read this stuff and you can catch the reality of who this man is and what he's done and what these people would have to be thinking and experiencing in his presence. Jesus, by the sheer power of who he was, spoke and carried this unbelievable authority that no one had ever seen or experienced before in all of history. 34 separate miracles are performed by Jesus in the gospel records as well as 15 other texts that refer to some type of miraculous occurrence happening to or around Jesus, not including being born of a virgin, being transfigured on top of the mountain to the image of God, resurrecting from the dead, and ascending to God the Father, not including those. If you were around Jesus, you'd have to be asking, who is this man who seems to master nature, who seems to master disease, who seems to master and rule over even death? So if that wasn't crazy enough to people, it has to be some of the things that he actually said. Some of the things that Jesus would actually say to people had to leave them wondering, who in the world is this man to say the things that he actually said? One of my favorites, and we'll just stick with one for time. One of my favorites is this, you gotta catch this reality. Let me give you some background. There was nothing more sacred to the life of an Israelite or to the life of the people of God at this time than the law of God. I mean, the law of God gave the stipulations and the regulations for the way in which they would relate to God, the way in which they would respond to God, and the way in which they would confess and repent towards God for the things that they had done and the ways that they had failed to love him. The law of God was absolutely priceless to the people of God, to the people of Israel. Jesus, at times, would speak of the law as if he had absolutely rewritten it or put it away altogether. As if he actually said, yeah, that actually doesn't matter anymore. This thing that defined for the people who God was and who they were, how they were to live with God, how they were to respond to God, how God was going to love them and what the stipulations were, he actually said, you know, it doesn't actually matter anymore sometimes. You've got your Bibles. Go to Mark 7. I love Mark. Just keep reading. I love Mark. I don't know why we have to go past anything but Mark. 
Mark 7. What in the world would he say? Listen to this. Traditions and commandments. you mind if I read the Bible some? Is that all right? Have you actually read some of it? I mean, I'll, I'll read it to you. But Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of Jesus' disciples ate with their hands that were defiled. That is, they were unwashed. See, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the traditions of the elders. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches, just so you get the idea. These Pharisees, these guys who were the religious teachers, the, the rulers of the synagogue, even at the time in the Sanhedrin, these Pharisees had actually, through the tradition of the elders, from the time of the giving of the law at Exodus, which is way back in the Old Testament to the left of your Bible, when God gave the people the law that they valued so much, this tradition of the elders that these Pharisees had learned and began to obey had added 613 rules to the law. So here are these guys that have come to Jesus who have not only memorized the entire Torah, the entire first five books of what we have is our Bible, they had not only memorized, had not only become familiar to memorization of even the prophets and the writings of what we would call Proverbs and Psalms, but they had adhered to 613 additional rules other than the ones that were already given by God. So these guys came to Jesus looking for a way to challenge him, looking for a way to trap him, looking for a way to discredit him, and they said, who are you and who are your disciples that that they eat with dirty hands because one of their laws in honoring God was to be clean beforehand. And the Pharisees and scribes asked, why do your disciples not walk according to the traditions of the elders but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, this is Jesus if your Bible isn't read, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrite? Well, let me read that with emphasis. It's not well, comma. It's well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Isaiah did a great job when he talked about you hypocrites. This is Jesus' response. I mean, read Jesus with some humor. I mean, read Jesus with a little bit of sense of wit. I won't embarrass anybody. We've got a Brit in here today. The British have the best sense of wit and irony and timing. Their comedy is better than anything. I think Jesus might have had a British accent if he was here today. (laughs) Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching is doctrine, the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. And then he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. Boy, listen to what he's saying. I mean, imagine this. Listen to this. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your own tradition. What he's saying is this letter of the law, this washing, you have rejected the commandment of God to honor him with your entire heart, with your whole soul, with your whole being, to worship him above everything else and you've replaced it with these commandments that you've created to prove how much you honor God that'll make you look good before other people that you might earn God's approval and love. You've missed the whole point. They've lived their whole lives by this law. They've been trying to get other people to live their lives by this law that God might be honored and glorified. And he said, law, nothing. You've missed the point. This is all they've ever done. This is all they've ever known. This is, you walk down the aisle, you sign the card, you say the prayer, you get the book, you go home, you do what everybody's told, all along missing the fact that God has wanted your heart. He's wanted your worship. He's wanted your soul. And you wake up in church one day and wonder, why in the world do I not know who this is? Why do I not love this man? And why do everything I do is wrong and I can't do enough to please him? And you've missed the whole point. He never wanted all those things from you. He never wanted all these things from them. He wanted their hearts. 
and wanted their soul, and in one felt swoop, Jesus wiped away everything they had put their hope in. No longer was their hope in who God was for them, the one who had rescued his people out of slavery, out of destruction, delivered them into the land of promise. Now God to them was a set of rules that they had to follow, and he wiped it all away. He absolutely, like Jenga, pulled that last piece out, and all of their righteousness and all of their hope and all of their future came crumbling down. Who in the world was this man who has such authority to speak this way about the law of God? Unbelievable. Who is this man that carries such authority? And if, if what he said and what he did wasn't enough to inspire the question, if it wasn't enough to, to frustrate the people and demand a response of who, who is this person who has mastery over nature and, and sin and death, and who is this person who has the authority to speak this way? about the law of God, if that wasn't enough, maybe it was Jesus' sense of his purpose that was the most confounding of all things. Maybe it was Jesus' sense of why he was on this earth that was the most frustrating, confusing, and question-inspiring reality about him. You see, Jesus did not Presume that he was on the earth to deliver the Israelites from the oppression that they were under in the Roman Empire. All of God's people at this time had this idea that they were waiting for this long-awaited king, this long-awaited conqueror, deliverer in the line of David who would come, who would reestablish the throne of David in the land, deliver the people of Israel from oppression, and establish the kingdom of God again in the land where they would rule and reign over all the people. They didn't want to be oppressed. They wanted to be the ones on top. They wanted to be out from under someone else and the king of David back in, in the throne and in a right relationship with God. This is what they were looking for. And Jesus did not understand his purpose on the earth to be that one who was going to do that. You see, one of the things that, that's important to understand about Jesus and it's important to understand about him is that in his entire ministry, I think there were only two times recorded in the entire gospel accounts. There might be more, so if you're a neat nick on all that stuff, call me and tell me. I'm okay. I'm, I'm learning humility. But I think there's only two that I could find where Jesus actually said, actually admitted out loud that he was the Messiah. See, there were, this was the anticipation. This was the hope. This is what everybody was looking for. Everybody was waiting for this Messiah, this deliverer who would come and deliver them. And if Jesus had stood up publicly and as he was teaching people and his throngs and thousands would gather around him, like times when he had to get in a boat and go out from the sea just so he could get away from the pressing, crushing weight of the people that were gathering, if he had said, I am he, I am the Messiah, under the assumptions that they were carrying about that, you'd have a revolt. People take up swords, take up arms, try to fight Rome and miss the entire point. Jesus, in his public ministry, never said, I am this one, but he did in John 4. In John 4, he's taking a walk, and he gets tired, which is a crazy thing for me. Jesus decided to sit down and take a rest. They were passing through Samaria, which is something you just don't do because Samaritans to the Jews were half-breeds, unclean people. And Jesus, instead of going around Samaria, takes his disciples through Samaria, and while he's in Samaria, he actually gets tired, and he sits down at a well, and he sends his disciples into town to get him some food because he was hungry. He just got hungry. He got tired. It's a good lesson for me. It's a good lesson for other people. That, I mean, Jesus had to take a rest too. 
And he sat down. He sent his disciples in to get some food. And while they went away to get some food, a woman came to the well. And I'll spare you the story. You've probably read it. We'll, we'll do it some other time. But this woman was a Samaritan, and she began to talk to Jesus. And Jesus, oh, man, the way he, he, he spoke to this woman and cared for this woman, not only was she a Samaritan, but she was a woman. And in this culture, there was really nothing lower on a human standard than being a woman. I mean, people would wake up, and, and good Israelites would wake up for, from the traditions of the elders from this time even forward and wake up, and in their early prayers, they would thank God for not being a Samaritan, a Gentile, or a woman. I mean, this is a woman who had no right to vote. She had no rights that we become so accustomed to. And not only that, she was a Samaritan. And Jesus sat down with this woman and unpacked her junk like nobody had ever seen. And she, she looked at him, and this is what she said. I, I love this. I'll just read it. I won't tell you this. I'll just read it. This woman said to Jesus, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he'll, he'll tell us all things. And Jesus looked at her and he said to her, I who speak to you am he. Only one other time than to this precious woman did Jesus ever reveal publicly that he was the Messiah, the one that God had sent, the one that they were waiting for, the longing and the hope and the fulfillment of all that the people of God had been dreaming of and longing for for centuries, for generations. His mission was not to free the people from the oppression of Rome. His mission was to, was to bring and to install the new covenant that God had promised his people way back in the Old Testament, starting in Genesis and declared more clearly in the prophets that they had put aside in hopes of this political and, and personal and even religious freedom that they were looking for. This is what God said in Ezekiel. Here's the covenant that Jesus came to inaugurate as a Messiah. God said, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put in you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jesus came as the son of God laying aside his rights as God and taking on the form of a man and the form of a servant and came and lived a life among us in a way that we never lived towards God in perfect dependence of worship that he might bring God's kingdom to bear on the life that we live right now. And it wasn't a kingdom that was to be brought with swords and war and fighting. It was a kingdom that was to be fought and won in the hearts of men and women. He came to establish the new covenant of God and to define for God's people what was their greatest need. He came to inaugurate the promise of God that because of who he is and what God was going to do to deliver them, he would give them a new heart and not only a new heart and forgive their sins, he would give them the very spirit of God. That was his understanding of what his mission was, but the people couldn't get it because what they were looking for was something that was so drastically different that even his disciples who followed, who listened, who watched, who learned, couldn't understand what Jesus was doing. And this is why his sense of purpose was so confounding that people would look at and go, who, who is this person who came to reconcile sinful and rebellious and idolatrous men and women like me? with a holy and loving God in such a way that we might actually call him Father and be called sons. And his very spirit would be put in our heart to work in us for his glory that we might obey him with a whole heart and receive the joy and the fulfillment that comes from being called a son and daughter of God. That was what he came to do. But one thing that Jesus understood because he was a, 
not only God, but as a good Hebrew, he would understand is that this kind of reconciliation, this kind of redemption, it took a sacrifice. It took a sacrifice. Jesus never assumed that the fulfillment of his mission, the new covenant of God, the the absolutely transforming power of God to give man a new heart would come by the process of evolutionary advancement. He never just thought that if enough time went along, we'll eventually get to the place where our hearts are now new and they're rightly angled toward God, that they're no longer sinful. In fact, that our heart of stone that's bent towards itself, towards sin, would actually be replaced by a heart that loves God truly and loves God duly and finds its pleasure in who God is for us. And that's just a process of time. He never, he never assumed that the evolutionary process would lead us to the place where we would actually love God for all that God is for us In Jesus, he understood that this type of redemption, this kind of rescue, this type of ransom took a sacrifice. But the crazy thing about it was, like we talked about last week, he did not think that the blood of a Passover lamb, which had been instituted by God and celebrated by the people every single year, was sufficient enough to do the work that God had promised and to make the change that God had promised and to bring about this new covenant. He knew that the blood of bulls and goats was never sufficient for the cleansing of sin, so Jesus did not come and offer up a lamb for the sacrifice, for for the remission of sins. He actually gave himself up. He knew that the shedding of blood was the only way forgiveness was to come to man for their sins against God. Instead of offering up something separate, he actually took it upon himself and did what we could not do by being perfectly holy and righteous and loving in a perfect life of worship before God. He offered that up on the cross for our sins, paying the price for our idolatry and our misplaced worship that we might be reconciled to God, receive the promise of the new covenant, a new heart and the spirit of God that we might want to love God and obey his statutes with all that we are. That's what he understood his purpose on earth was. And people couldn't get it. People could not understand that he wasn't there to, sep- to, to liberate them from oppression from by, by a foreign ruler, but he was there to liberate them from the oppression to sin, to slavery, to death, and to Satan. That he came to set them truly free. That he came to do for them what nothing on earth ever could do for them ever before or ever since. He came to be their savior. He came to be their redeemer. Look at these slides. I put something up here for you. Look at this. This is what Jesus accomplished in his mission, in his life, and in his death for us and how he understood how forgiveness came and how he understood our relationship with God would be transformed. He came and in his life and, and on the cross, he became our redeemer. He freed us from the slavery to sin and death to live new lives of worship, joy, and freedom. The next one. He was our victor. He conquered Satan, sin, and death on the cross so that we could live free of sla- from the slavery to sin, free from the slavery of vain regret for past sins, and free of condemnation and torment in this life for the sins that we commit now. How much condemnation and torment do you find yourself absolutely trapped and ensnared in on a day-in and day-out basis forgetting that Jesus, by his life, his death, and his resurrection, has freed you from the slavery to the condemnation of the mistakes and the sin and the misplaced worship that you offer to God now? He's done it once and for all. He is our victor. He was our new covenant sacrifice who offered his own body in our place for our sins in fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system. That's what we talked about last week at Passover. The next one. He's our justification. He took away our sin and gives us his righteousness as a gift by exchanging places with us on the cross so that we could be justified before God. He lived the life that we were created to live. We say this all the time. He lived the life that we were created to live and he died to pay the price for the life that we chose to live instead. 
And in his sacrifice on the cross and God's acceptance of that sacrifice and vindication of it by raising him from the dead, he offers us his perfect life of righteousness before God in replacement for our sin. Unbelievable. He's our justification. Big words. Our propitiation. Big words. It's in your Bible. Just depends on what translation you've got. He's our propitiation. He stood in our place to divert the just wrath of God away from us by enduring it in love. He took the just and holy and righteous wrath of God on himself on the cross in our place so that we would not have to stand before God in, the, in eternity and be judged and sent away from him for all of eternity. He suffered that in our place. Propitiation. Our expiation. He's the one who cleanses us from the sins that we have committed and the sins committed against us which mingle together leaving us defiled and with shame. He's the one that takes away and has taken away our shame. Hey, you deal with shame? Have things that have occurred to you or things that you have done to yourself and to others left you with this film and this sense of shame? He is the one on the cross in his body, in his death, by what he suffered, who's taken away the slavery that we have in our life today to this sense of shame because of what's happened to us and what we've done. He actually can take that away. He can. He was our expiation. He was our ransom. He's the one who's mediated between us and God and paid the price for our sins. Let's go to the next one. He's our example. He's shown, us, he's shown for us the perfect human life, which includes laying down our lives for brothers and sisters by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's go to the next one. He's our reconciliation. He's taken away our sin and reconciled us back to a loving relationship with God and others. Let's go to the next one. He's our revelation, who on the cross revealed God's wrath, God's love, his justice, his mercy, his holiness, and his compassion in absolute perfection. This, among a whole host of other reasons, is why Jesus is our central conviction at Redemption Hill. This, among an entire scripture's worth of reasons, is why the person and the work of God is the thing we hold most highly and of utmost value in this church and that we hope to see woven into our souls, into our lives, clung to in the most desperate sense of dependency for our hope and for our joy, for our freedom and for our passion. If it wasn't true, all that wasn't true, like we said earlier, along with Paul, we would be the most of all people to be pitied. What we celebrated last week was the fact that by the resurrection, God made all of these things possible. All of these things became a very present and real reality for our lives that should demand a response and the response that's demanded, the response that's expected, the response that we want to see cultivated in our lives from today to the day that we go to see Jesus face to face is worship. It's worship. The only response to who is this person and you receive a right understanding of him and, and a transforming of your heart by him is to worship him with, with all that you are, with all that you have with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. Listen to this. Here's a definition of worship for you. Worship is living our life individually and corporately as continuous living sacrifices to the glory of a person or a thing. So the reality of what that thing is saying, that definition is saying is that all of us hold a person or a thing in, in a place of glory. And glory is just really a fancy word, of a way of saying weightiness, a, a worth, utmost importance, preeminence, value. We all hold a person or a thing or a group of people or things in this place of utmost importance and, and of utmost value. And our hearts are wired to worship whatever we truly value. 
Oh, whatever it is that sits in that place of, of glory and of utmost importance and value, our hearts are absolutely wired and created by God to worship whatever that thing is, to give ourselves to it, and we worship it by giving ourselves to it and making sacrifices for it. We don't just cut goats and chickens and whatever. We make sacrifices with our, our lives, our, our time, our, our talent, our treasures, our passion, our interests. We make sacrifices for it. We were made to experience, be a part of, and, and to find joy and passion and be consumed by the pursuit of the God who created us and called us to himself. But we substitute that thing so often for such pale and hollow reflections of a glory that is due only to God. And so far from being a, a Christianity that has no place for Jesus any longer, who, whose Christianity has gotten so complete and filled so full that Jesus has been completely set outside of the box, our hope and our purpose and our prayer is that at Redemption Hill, Jesus stays squarely at the center of all of our convictions, all of our hope, all of our joy, all of our pursuit, all of our passion, and that we respond to the value and the worth of who God is for us in Jesus with a life of absolutely ceaseless worship. That our lives are living sacrifices, as Paul said, acts of worship in everything that we do. Living a life of worship is simply this. It's living a life of abiding satisfaction in all that God is for us in Jesus. That's what it is. Some of you get confused when we talk about worship because you think about church and what we do here on Sundays is really not a worship service. It should actually be called a service of worship. That we come in here and, and we serve and we worship God by coming to him and remembering in the call to worship that he has called us to himself and done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves and we respond to him and we worship him and singing songs about his greatness and glory and we serve him and worship him by hearing what he said about himself and about us in his word and responding to it in confession and, and in repentance and, and receiving what he has done for us on the cross in communion and we respond to God and worship God and serve God and singing again about who he is and being sent out by him to be his people in the city. It's just a service of worship. Everything that we do each thing that we do in here is just worship and he sends us out to live the lives that he's called us to live in ceaseless acts of worship that how we love and how we live and how we serve and how we work and how we play are all acts of worship. And so in thinking about how to define best what it is to live a life of worship, I found this and I want to read it to you. This is how we'll close. Here's what it means, I think. Here's a way of defining what it means to worship Jesus above everything else and what I hope to see cultivated, what I hope to see and pray to see become a confession that, that we can make and continually and increasingly hold on to in the life of this church. I'm going to read it. Don't try to write it down. Here's what it means to worship Jesus and everything else. When we worship Jesus above all else, we're declaring again that everything that is really worth living for and having is a gift from God. I recognize that I could never have written my own story. My life, gifts, talents, and blessings all come from God. We acknowledge that we cannot be what we are supposed to be or do what we are supposed to do apart from a constant supply of God's grace in Jesus. We need his wisdom, his love, his strength, his patience, his perseverance, and faith that we do not have on our own. When we worship Jesus above all else, we do not measure our potential by the limits of our natural ability, but by his unending resource of grace. And since we need his grace, we seek it where it's to be found. 
in all the things that we do, we do these things not out of duty, but because Christ is my source and I am a passionate seeker of his grace. To worship Jesus above everything else means that he really is the reason I do everything that I do. I want to know him. I want to be a part of his work on earth. I want to please him with my life. I want to value what he values. I want his purpose for me to define my purpose for myself. I want to follow his words and incarnate his character. I want to be his disciple and represent him like an ambassador so that his will shapes my actions, reactions, words, thoughts, and desires. My decisions are more about what pleases him than what pleasures me. I'm thrilled that he has called me to be a part of his big kingdom, and I want to live in a way that fits with the goals, values, and purposes of it. Worshiping Jesus above everything else means that I willingly submit every other attainable glory in my life to the one glory that's captured my heart and structures my life, the glory of Jesus. I want him to be known, honored, worshiped, and obeyed. I want his purposes to succeed. And though there are things that I would like to experience and accomplish, there's one orienting compass in my life. It's the honor and glory that I live for. I no longer live, decide, and act, and relate for the purposes of my own glory. I found something far more wonderful and beautiful. Jesus is what gives my life direction and joy. So what are you hoping for? What basket have you put all of your eggs in? Where do you tend to say, if I only had this, then my life would be great? What do you look forward to and hope that you can experience? What occupies your mind and controls your dreams? Are you constantly investing in what can't deliver and won't last? Is Christ your hope? Is he the rock on which your life stands? When you worship Jesus above all else and when Christ is your hope, he becomes the one thing in which you can have confidence. You can act on his wisdom and bank on his grace. You can trust his promises and rely on his presence. You can pursue all good things that he has promised simply because you trust him. I can now live my life not manipulating, controlling, or threatening my way through to get what I want because I have found what I truly want in Jesus. He is my hope. My prayer for us as we wrap this up and as we go forward from day in and day out from this point forward is that we become a people whose lives increasingly reflect a heart that worships Jesus above everything else. That we be a people, we be a church, we be a community who worships him above all the other things that call out for our attention, call out for our desire, and call out for our worship. Is Jesus your hope? Is there a place for Jesus in your Christianity? When he is your hope, and when your heart begins to worship him for who he is and what he has done above everything else, then you truly have the one thing that you can have utmost confidence 